Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 554 for December 30th, 2023. Welcome back. Welcome back and Happy New Year. Uh, we have a real treat tonight. We finished talking to uh, Derby just clear. He's been on maybe twice before. He's, yeah. He's pro- so prolific in his writing. This time we're talking to him about steamboats on the uh, Mississippi and the tributaries because, uh, you know, most of the rivers in that part of the world uh, go into the Mississippi at some point. And so um, uh, steamboats have shaped America's future its economy and its culture, especially Louisiana's. The, the 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 towns and cities alongside our riverways. Um, what was once a six months journey now could be made in forty five days, which still sounds like a long time, but it's a lot less time than it was before, and a lot easier because yeah, you know, state room and not walking. <laughs> there would not be a modern Louisiana without the steamboat. You know, I mean, this was right. open up the Mississippi Valley, the Ohio River Valley. It yeah. opened up the best because you, you had steamboats out in Colorado, of all places. So, I mean, the, the, the steamboat opened up this whole area and really up in, as, you know, up, up into the northern Midwest and made that transportation, you know, speedier. It made it more accessible and affordable. Uh, yeah. Well, that means the price of goods and services come down, you know. and creates lower prices for some of the products so people can forum. So we'll look forward to finishing our chat with Derby in a few minutes, but first, this week in Louisiana history. Yeah, so this week in Louisiana history, on December 23rd, 1813, Legislative Act Number 5 provides for the official state seal. So is this what brings in the brown pelican and the little chicks in the mail? I think so. What was the date? Oh. Yeah, December 23rd of 1813. So this is in the first year. Yeah. Louisiana will, will, will have been a right. by that a year when this is when this passed. It might be a nod to the Catholics because I think the telecom is uh, in iconography, you know. Um, so um, because the pelican supposedly feeds its chicks by... Uh, uh, cutting its own breast. Um, doesn't seem yeah, to yeah, and it's a symbol of sacrifice and the right, right. And so forth. Yeah. Now for this week in New Orleans history, we have the Storyland dedication, December thirtieth, nineteen fifty-six. During um, the nineteen fifties, Storyland in City Park was filled. Nursery rhyme figures created by a young man who would build the most noted Mardi Gras floats. Uh, it was funded by an older man who owned and operated the most amusement park it's in the South. So, yeah, Storyland, uh, a little before my time. Hmm. <laughs> Enough for this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, we celebrate New Year's Eve in New Orleans. New Orleans is the perfect place to bring in the new year. Whether you want to grab dinner and turn in for the night early, celebrate at a children's event during the day, or party all night long, we've got something for everyone Here's how to celebrate New Year's Eve in New Orleans. For the biggest party in the city, head to Jackson Square. The quarter is packed with festive partygoers eager to count down the time until the New Year arrives with the fleur-de-lis drop. We don't use the baby, it's the fleur-de-lis. 
If outdoor celebrations and big crowds aren't for you, then make a reservation at one of the city's many fine restaurants and celebrate the evening over delectable meals and, of course, lots of bubbly. Many restaurants offer special deals or packages for the evening, so make sure that you check ahead to ensure the perfect night for you, your loved ones, and your friends. There is a website if you want to check this out. Uh, you can also go to the Four Seasons Hotel in New Orleans. This is not the Four Seasons where Rudy had his uh, little conference. Going <laughs> <laughs> the party, 34, 34, 34 floors above the Mississippi River for a firework display to remember. Uh, View Orleans offers unmatched bird's eye views of the New Orleans fireworks, adult beverages, light pass appetizers. DJ music and a champagne toast at midnight. This all begins at 10 p.m. and uh, you must be 21 years old to uh, to purchase these tickets and attend. This is because of the alcohol. And uh, be sure to keep an eye out for Rudy Giuliani. He loves anything named Four Seasons. So uh, America's Mayor. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and watch out, watch out for flying just for man. You know because right, you, and this uh, you may get yeah. And um, they still have some specials at local restaurants called Revion Dinners, R-E-V-E-I-L-L-O-N. And uh, that's kind of a set menu to celebrate Christmas in them. So, um, you know, you have some choice. Like they'll have two salads to choose from, two main dishes, two desserts, and whatever else. But, um, yeah, check those out. There's uh, just a couple of days left you can get those. Um with the uh, you know the extended Christmas season. Uh, now for this week's postcard from Louisiana, we listen to the join John Joyce Band at the DBA Bar in New Orleans.
Now on to our interview with Derby Disclare. It's hard to imagine what Duvall would have been without the steamboat, you know, because uh, so much part of the, uh, the theme of the book, you know, I, I was either on or uh, about to get on or about to get off uh, or get thrown off a, a steamboat, you know, and uh, uh, that was just, you know, the, the world he lived in. Well, what would Mark Twain be without a steamboat? Right, right, right. I mean, oh, yeah. you, you know, the origin is name. Yeah. The, the deckhand uh, takes a lead weight on a, on a rope and, and drops it off to take a depth sounding. And so he'll say Mark 10, that means you got 10 feet of clearance. Well, Mark Twain was 12 feet of clearance. And uh-huh. the other thing that he, he borrowed, there's a, there are two terms for a, an obs- sunken obstruction that will sink a riverboat. Mm. One is called a snag and the other is called a sawyer. Right. Tom yeah. Sawyer came from riverboat terminology as well. Yeah, they're all kind of like mob nicknames, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, I wanted to show you uh, one of our favorite things uh, about his time on the riverboat. Let's see if I can uh, share that. This is uh, a letter to his sister on March 9th and 11th, 1859. Uh, just read the first sentence. It's the beginning of Lent in all good Catholics eat and drink freely of what they please and, in fact, do what they please in order that they may be the better able to keep sober and fast during the uh, quiet during the coming fast. It's been said that a Scotsman has not seen the world and he only has seen Edinburgh. I think that I may say that an American has not seen the United States until he has seen Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And I, only I, use that, the, I use that last part of the quote. Each, each of my uh, stories has a, a quote underneath the title of it, and I use several of them from Twain, obviously. And I use that last one when we talk about excursion boats um, mm-hmm. because as, as trains took over carrying cargo from the steamboats, the, the uh, industry evolved into excursions. Um, and they still do that. I have a Facebook friend. He's a musician, but uh, recently his child, he's had a, like a, a gig going up and down the river uh, on a. It looks like a steamboat. I don't know if it is, uh, but uh, you know he's the music for for the thing. So oh, Jeff. Uh, yeah. oh yes, yes, you know Jeff. Yeah, I, know, I know Jeff. Jeff. I hope I hope he's got his hand uh, fixed up now. But yeah, it, it's it's amazing. Um, I get more people who have come in contact with me. Uh, I, I, I put a picture up of, of uh, uh, one of New Orleans' favorite sons, a fellow named Clark Hawley, Doc Hawley, who was a, a captain of the, the Delta Queen and the Natchez and whatnot, um, and just a character, just a wonderful character. Um, I got more people who had worked with him at, there was a lady from California who had been the, ran the concession stand on the Delta Queen at one point in time. And she said, you know, she, she lost all of her photos in the move. And I was able to give her photos of her concession stand, uh-huh. and the rest of the interior of the boat and a bunch of things like that. So it's, it's brought in a whole bunch of new people to me. I'm used to, you know, all the baseball cranks and, folks that I've, I've, you know, known over the years. And steamboating is something that um, is 
relatively new to me, but it's it's just fascinating, and it's a it's a wonderful um, group of people who keep up that history. I found that the Louisiana Studies community is, uh, they're great. Our favorite uh, paper to give every year is at the Louisiana Studies Conference in September up in Natchitoches. You know, it's not the biggest, uh, but everybody there, most of them are, A, living in Louisiana, and every one of them is interested in Louisiana. And so you have a great conversation. And it's not, it's not, just, uh, it's not just literature like Bruce and me either. It's historians, geographers. Oh, yeah, uh, linguist. Yeah, it's it's really it's a it's a wide array of disciplines. And what they do, wh one thing I really appreciate, it's open to the public. So it's not just a mm -hmm. scholars conference. You could be a particularly locals come from Natchitoches, Robilene, that area, and they'll they'll roll in there to hear what the different people like Bruce and myself, you know, will say in our presentation. Yeah. So it's great, you know, to get the public interested in Louisiana we, and its people. We, on the other hand, uh, in order to present, have to pay $50 each. <laughs> the public <laughs> listens to it free. It's kind of an inversion of normal teaching. But we have here, a, 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 I think it's from a magazine, maybe 1869, uh, Mystic Crew of Comus. But this is what Mark or Sam Clemens would have seen uh, when he was there. And it was only the third time the march had had gone on and and you can already see how the crowds are already there and the crowds are part of it they're dressed up too uh and at this time this is still basically a local you know something new orleanians do for new orleanians but that third year in sam clemens that letter uh, it's kind of the first uh, uh foreshadowing of the fact that people are going to want to come from around the world to see this well, it sure made an impression on the uh, Grand Duke Alexis, didn't it? <laughs> right. But you know, interesting in that same in that same uh, in illustration that you have, you're on St. Charles Avenue because you can see the St. Yeah. Charles Theater. There, there's a different use of steamboats, and one was by the the same folks, David Bidwell, whose Academy of Music is right up from the the St. Charles Theater. It's the next large sign up to just to the left of center. Um, his partner and manager was a fellow named Eugene Robinson. And Eugene Robinson had what amounts to, um, he had a storefront on Canal Street that amounted to basically a Ripley's Believe It or Not. You know? Oh, yeah. But he also had a showboat. And it was, a, you know, two of them, uh, two large barges, basically. One was a legitimate theater. That, that held 1,300 people. And the other was a, a, a museum, you know, and he would go up and down the river to all these little small communities that didn't have much entertainment and he, he would rake it in. But the problem with that is, uh, you know, once you've seen one bearded lady or, you know, one two-headed calf, you've seen them all. And so he had to convince <laughs> new attractions and oddities and things of that. Right. He, got to be harder and harder and harder. I mean, he, you know, he, he had borrowed the idea of, uh, uh, of calliope from the circus and that's how calliopes came oh, to be yeah. in steamboats. Um, and, and so you had different groups uh, like Spalding and Rogers came out of Massachusetts and came down the Ohio and uh, did the same sort of a thing. So you had showboats, uh, Indiana university uh, had one of the, the, the majestic was, was one of the oldest uh, uh, showboats still existing till it, it 
unfortunately burned. Um, but you, you have you know, all sorts of different things. And, and it, again, it, oh, there's a book about those things. Um, yeah, because I, I found that book here a while back and thought that guy would be fantastic to bring on the show. And unfortunately, he's passed away. But it was it was a really good book. I think it's the only book length treatment about showboats. I mean, it's there, really, really good. A, there's a couple that I've seen um, that that do it. Most of them are out of print, which is, you know, that's right, okay. Right. You can still find it on on uh, uh, on the Internet somewhere. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah. the concept of a steamboat goes beyond the cotton carrier or the floating palace. We had them in New Orleans. We had them um, as ferries uh, to take cars, you know, and, and until you, you had the Huey Long Bridge, the only way to get a train car across the river was on a ferry. So you had, All right. yeah. you had different types of train ferries. You had car ferries and passenger ferries. Um, and they were all steam operated. Uh, another was the steam tug. Uh, in the earliest days of the port, people would say, well, how does a schooner get up the Mississippi on sail power? He says, well, he basically, he doesn't. If the current's oh, yeah. running, he, he doesn't. He has a steam tug pull him up the river. So you had all manner of, of you know, from oyster boats and fishing boats to snag boats and dredges and, uh, you know, everything that relied on steam power, um, they found a way to. The, the first telephone lines that got laid across the, 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 the marshes and whatnot were all done on steamboats. So it's, you know, it has a fascinating history. Yeah. And for, for listeners, it's, it's pretty remarkable. These things didn't just ply the Mississippi and its tributaries like the Washita. We had them around here, if you can believe. They, they actually... Uh, rolled up and down uh, Bayou Darbone, which is what flows into uh, Lake Darbone, up here right below the Arkansas line. In fact, my cousin lives on that thing, and I had heard years ago that there were supposedly some those packet-type boats that plied Darbone Bayou, and it turns out there were. Actually, as we've been looking, I found photographs of those things, and they were those were traveling Bayou Darbone into the early 20th century, and they were carrying small loads, like small group of passengers, or it might be uh, somebody, for example, going out of Monroe up to, into Union Parish or coming, you know, out of Arkansas down into Union Parish and into Monroe, or they'd be hauling cotton or something like that, or even even livestock. So it was not big cargo by, by any means. Well, you know, you look at, at in the book, I try not to be too repetitive about what steamboats carried, but every so often you'd run across a, a bill of lading that, you know, it, it was just so diverse. The clerk on the ship had to to log it all in, you know, he had, right, right, yeah. had to know what was coming in and where it was going out. And so it made good records of everything. The, uh, the 10 sacks of pecans, the three barrels of apples, you know, the, the box of nails, the two, the two cartons <laughs> of women's shoes. I mean, whatever needed to be moved, got moved. And right. uh, it's just fascinating how uh, even, even then I tell a story about a, a fellow who, in New Orleans, had two barrels of very fine brandy that had to get up to St. Louis, and uh, but he needed to be paid for it. So instead of collecting on the other end, the clerk paid him and was going to collect from the merchant on the other side. And what a shock when they got there and opened it up! It was river water. 
<laughs> so you oh know, my guys God. have been running scams for as long. You know, it's it's not that that's the steamboat version of a bet you I know where you got them shoes. You know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On your feet. Oh, um, tell us a little bit about the uh, steamboat that's up parked out uh, or docked right behind the jazz uh, uh, Jack's Brewery. Well, you have yeah. Right now, we have two that are there. You have the Natchez that has recently undergone a tremendous uh, renovation uh, and, and sort of an upgrade and is waiting on the Coast Guard to uh, give her a, a, a clean bill so that she can start taking uh, traffic again. Um, I mean, I've, I, I live two blocks from the river, so I can hear the calliope. I can, I can see them going back and forth. So she's, she's mobile and everything else but she can't take on commercial passengers just yet. Uh, the other okay. is called the city of New Orleans. And uh, it's, it's one of the, you know, like the Natchez, it's one in a series by the same name that's doing day cruises. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a delightful thing from time to time. We used to have the cotton blossom. We used to go uh, from Audubon park uptown down to the, uh, canal street and, and take, uh, passengers back and forth, and that was always a nice uh, part of the of a family type uh, cruise. So yeah, you still sure, have those, sure. um, but inevitably, when I when I do my my posts on Facebook and and Twitter and all the rest of it, I get questions about the president. Um, and the president of, of blessed memory was where most kids in New Orleans went to their first big. Uh, you know, junior, senior prom sort of a thing. Yeah. You went on the president and you had a rock and roll band. And of course you had a flask in both hip pockets and <laughs> it was big fun, you know, sort of a thing. Um, <laughs> but the president, unfortunately, is sitting in pieces and is not likely to be uh, rebuilt. Oh, there was one in Monroe like that. I think it was the, the Delta Queen or the Washita Queen or something. And it was a full sizer. It was not a you know one of those packets. And it this this thing was traveling even into the definitely into the late twentieth century. Because I had a friend actually who took a and his girlfriend took the the cruise down to Washita, I think to Columbia or someplace, and back up to Monroe. And that thing eventually was scuttled. But I've read something from just a few months ago. This, this thing was posted, and I've read this thing too since we've been you know talking about these these vessels. And this was a post from actually from Hannah Newspapers, which I think is the papers out of West Monroe. This is just from last year that they're calling for some form of steam travel, some form of steam boat to be traveling the Washita again, because they know that it's a big tourist draw, you know, to be, well, yeah. people come in and see the river. The Washita, like the Mississippi, is, has was years ago declared a national scenic waterway. And so people love to travel that river, uh, but, and, you know, by some kind of watercraft like a steamboat. And so that's... Again, that's the perfect way to do it. I've been on those steamboats. Uh, we live 30 miles from Monroe, and I think my uh, youth group in uh, uh, high school went there one time and rode on it. And also, I think I've been twice on the one in New Orleans. So, uh, like I say, yeah, I've been on the one in New Orleans once. And that's my parents took that trip in New Orleans. It was a blast, they said. You know, it was, and this is way back in the 40s, I think. Late 30s, early 40s, when they took it. Sometimes well, the I take the ferry. <laughs> the, the Delta Queen has been is one of the few ships that um, has been on the Ohio, the Missouri, the Mississippi, 
but it's also been out west and worked on Sacramento and San Francisco Bay and, and such as that because you had the, the two hulls were ordered from Scotland and, and they built the, they came over the U.S., built the ship. So you had the, the, the Delta King and the Delta Queen. And at one point, there was what's called a remote control race uh, of steamboats. And this was uh, in, the, in the, the early 40s, uh, before the war. So it had to be 1940, I, I guess. Um, it was basically a time trial. The Delta King took the one route down the Sacramento River to San Francisco Bay. The Delta Queen took another one. And there was a third vessel called the Golden Eagle who went uh, from St. Louis to New Orleans. And they they had official timekeepers and whatnot else. And uh, the, the, the Golden Eagle won. But the Delta Queen very shortly thereafter was pressed into military service and uh carried uh, wounded soldiers off the hospital ships from Pearl Harbor uh, into San Francisco and uh, we used as a training vessel and, and lots of other things and then was recycled again back after the war into excursion business uh, came took people to New Orleans for Mardi Gras took people to the to Louisville for the Kentucky Derby and whatnot else and like many vessels, there's a move afoot to try and get her rebuilt and, and relaunched. Uh, the, because I, lots of communities, as you said, Bruce, lots of communities would like to have one uh, oh, as, yeah. a, as a tourist attraction. Are these uh, bona fide steamboats or do they just look like steamboats and they've got some kind of diesel engine working on under it, in it? Well, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to belch a horrible smelling gas to be a steamboat, you know. Um, the paddle is works, you know, the, the steering mechanism works and, and whatnot else. And it's it's fun to see, it's fun to watch. Yeah. Um, it's it's incredibly different for most people. I mean if you if you take the the Queen Elizabeth, you know, you're on this or you take one of the carnival cruises. I mean you're on this big floating shopping mall right and yeah you know it, it's kind of plain vanilla you know you've got a disney feature to it and you've got you know stuff for the kids but for an adult it's it's not much to it you know so i think that's why people that people have a, a hankering for nostalgia you know and i bet there were a lot did, of adult did they, ever, <laughs> did they ever did those things ever apply to the coast or did they strictly travel the river rivers and you know bayous oh, and so forth oh no you could you could well of course the only way to get from jeffersonville indiana to mobile alabama was to come down the mississippi and then hug the coastline and then go up the mobile to the tensus and whatever else is you know uh, they were looking for um, by the same token, you took the Delta Queen from San Francisco Bay uh, all the way through that Panama Canal and around the Gulf of Mexico, and it went all it went all the way, came back to Avondale Shipyards here and got um, got its first round of uh, uh, repairs, and then they took it up to Pittsburgh and did it again. But you know, if you're if you're on the coast, you're in pretty good shape. Um, the biggest problem with steamboats on rivers are the snags and the sawyers. 
Right. You don't have a lot of that out in the open ocean. All of that gets washed up. Wave action takes care of that. Um, so it's 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 inevitable. People will say, "Well, why do I see all these pictures of steamboat wrecks and they're right on the they're right on the shoreline? Why couldn't they?" I said, "Well, the minute he hit that snag and the alarm went up, the crew started to try and pump the water out, and the captain turned it right to the shore." and got as close to the shore as he could so he could put the stage over or the gangplank over onto the levee, unload the passengers and the cargo, and try and save as much of the boat as he could. And it's surprising mm -hmm. how many times uh, I, I gave the story of one of these boats. It, was, it seemed like it, it was nothing but bad luck <laughs> from its maiden voyage where it threw a, a rod in the engine to, to it sank here and it sank there and it hit this soil and hit that snag. It got caught up on the rocks in the dam in Louisville. It got boom, 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 boom. And every time it sank, it got raised and refitted, repurposed, renamed, and sent out back into commerce. <laughs> That's funny. I, I'm surprised I could get anybody to go on it. What's it, it's that reputation? You know, I guess the money money helps with that. Well, and it does. A lot name. of times, <laughs> the change of name. People talk, you know, particularly on on social media. People like to be antagonistic from time to time. And when you you, you put on a piece about uh, fueling and you know uh, what the deckhands had to do, and they say, "Well, how many of them were slaves?" And you say, "Well, this was 1895, so none." <laughs> but, but you look at it and say, "What would make a guy knowing the dangers of?" of steamboat explosions, what would make him want to volunteer to do that as opposed to being just a land-based stevedore? And right. It was the fact that he made 10 to $20 a week more being on the boat than he did on land. So it was worth it for them and their family to, to you know, to uh, take the extra risk. Right, right. And they were, they were paid very well, you know. A lot of times when, you, you know, if you look at it and say, I've hit a snag, I'm hit to the shore, my guys have to unload all the cargo. Well, if the cargo gets unloaded and the insurance company pays for it, the crew can divvy it up now. So, <laughs> I, you know, now what are you, what are you going to do with a sack of cottonseed? Well, you go sell it to somebody. But, you know, you had bottles of wine and food stuff and clothing and all sorts of things that the crew could – could uh, take home. So it, right. they had its, its perks, few as they might be. You know, there, there were some perks there. Well, and it's kind of also the romance of it. That, uh, and, and if you want to see why people would work on a steamboat, Life on the Mississippi has a pretty good, like uh, Samuel Clemens, he and every other kid wanted to be a riverboat pilot, which is, of course, the ancestor to the airplane pilot, astronaut pilot. So, you know, it was a cool, uh, high, uh, you know. High adventure, let's face yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like I said earlier, nostalgia is a funny thing. Uh, <laughs> I post a lot of, I post a lot of historical photos on, on social media. Yeah, yeah. And inevitably, uh, some of the female commentators say, oh, I wish I could go back in time. It would be so wonderful. And I'm like, did you look <laughs> at the horse droppings and mule droppings in the street? 
Did right? you look yeah. at the depth of the street gutters where all of that urine and you know all that runoff gets gets washed into? And you're walking in your nice gown, right? Through all of this, you know, can imagine what it smelled like. Can you imagine what the people smelled like? Because you know you had your exactly. Saturday bath if you had your Saturday bath. You know, and and you're wearing your wool suit in the middle of a New Orleans summer. That's not very pleasant as well. And they that's always say, like well, these, but that's these, not these true. I'm like, think of that pic, that very famous picture of Pirate's Alley. When you're looking from one end to the other and you notice in the middle, there's a little little trough in the middle of, of, of the sidewalk. And people don't stop to think that from the second floor bedroom, people would take their chamber pot and throw <laughs> it to the balcony and it would wash into that little trough. So... The French Quarter then, as now, smells a lot like a bathroom. Well, we we don't really. But it's nostalgic it to think of it as you know the the wonderful old day. You know, we wasn't don't really, always so wonderful. Yeah, we don't it's really like believe in rent, indoor rent plumbing. Yeah, you know. uh, <laughs> it's really hard to find a restroom in in the French Quarter. Well, you know, you got to go buy something, and if you buy something, you can get a restroom. Right, even if that's just going into a bar and ordering a Coca-Cola, you can do that and you can use the restroom. But, you know, right. yeah. It's, yeah. it's like anything else, you know. Why would you go in a Bourbon Street bar and order a Coca-Cola? <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure some people do. There's um, all kinds. That's right, that's right. So are there any of the, can I ask this question another way, but are there any of the old fashioned like uh, steam, steam, you know, with boilers that, uh, you know, you have to heat up and boil the water and that, that's your, you know, power? You have them, but they're not, they're not allowed to leave the wharf. You can power up and show it and use it as uh, a yeah. visiting thing, but you're not allowed to carry passengers or leave the, the wharf. Well, I suppose Americans won't put up anymore with the kind of a dangerous uh, uh, that seems inherent to a steam. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when I was a kid, we had a principal who was trying to work on the boiler at school, and it blew up, and he managed. He survived. He had to wear tinted glasses for several months. Uh, uh, but those things blow up. You're, you're boiling water in a you know confined area, and yeah. you know, a little too much water boils, and that steam won't will not won't wait. You know, it's stronger ultimately than the, whatever metal you're using. Well, you notice that that uh, illustration you had from Courier and Eyes of the Natchez and the Robert E. Lee. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you if you put that up again, I'll show you <laughs> something that, that, that interesting. Um, everybody immediately notices the two smokestacks because they're the biggest and the tallest. But, and that's because they're right in front of the engine and the boilers. Right. But in the back of the boat, you have two smaller pipes. Uh, yeah. And you see it coming with the white smoke there. Right. Those are steam vents. So, you know, you have that very popular um, uh, expression, you just let off some steam. Right. 
and it comes from this. You know, you didn't have very accurate gauges or anything else to measure the pressure. So from time to time, the chief engineer, in an abundance of caution, would just let off some steam. Right, yeah. And, and so it not only vented um, the engines, but it also took the kitchen and, and pantries and whatnot were also in the rear of the, the boat. So it also uh, uh, vented all of that that you see back there. And you see in between the in between the smokestacks, you see the bracing and all the those are the hog chains. Oh, okay, cool. So now I know a little bit about my, uh, you know, where I come from. So also, I was noticing uh, the the fire seemed to be really coming out of those smokestacks, and probably when they weren't racing, they didn't quite have so much, uh, you know, of, of the fire coming out of the smokestack. Yeah, that's that's another uh, artist's uh, latitude. There you know, <laughs> makes it more dramatic. This this <clears throat> this particular lithograph, as well as there were two others, it probably every saloon in America had yeah. one on their wall at some point. And if they had a second one, it would have been Custer's Last Stand. Those were right. Yeah. Those were the most popular lithographs of the of the day. But you look at it and you say, here's, here's the part that's artist license. Go ahead and, and magnify it again like you did. Yeah. If, you, if you look closely on the right, the Robert E. Lee is showing all sorts of freight. Well, it's well known that he didn't carry any freight on that race, and he barely had any passengers. So, again, it's a little artist latitude. Uh, right. Yeah, so it wasn't just having the fastest boat but it was also like figuring up the way to uh use it uh like like having somebody meet you and uh kind of like those airplanes you know that, that fly 24 hours a day and every so often they'll have a, a a big plane full of uh jet fuel that'll uh come up and they're just hooked to it so they don't have to to land and and also let's make it lighter let's not put much cargo on it so uh yeah, you can see I'm using ingenuity to, to get the well, advantage. The other thing that they did on these is if you look on the on the left, you see the Natchez. In, in between the two smokestacks, you see this square or rectangular object, which was mm -hmm. uh, it was a metal cotton bale. Hmm. And that was Captain Leather's insignia mm. uh, so that people could find his, you know, if you've seen the, the pictures of a, a line of riverboats on Mississippi, just one after the other, you could find your boat very easily by looking at the insignia. Uh, imagine from imagine walking around outside of an airport trying to pick out your exact airplane. <laughs> like, exactly. Uh, that's what we're dealing with. So you need some kind of clue. Well, you know, and, and the other things, if you look at, at some of the old pictures of the levee in New Orleans where they've got stacks of coffee and, and barrels of sugar and bales of cotton, you'll notice a little flag packed on top of the cotton. And what you don't see is that there's a corresponding flag on the, the riverboat. And that's to allow the illiterate stevedores to know what car, what car oh, yeah. goes on what boat. They can recognize the insignia 
and say, okay, right. this goes to that one, that one, or it comes off of here and goes here. They they used them both ways. So, they, they you know, they developed a pretty good methodology for uh, f- for being able to identify a boat. Um, the planters up and down the river, uh, all they had to do was to wave a white flag, and the steamboat captain would pull to the to the landing and take passengers or whatever cargo the guy wanted to to, to ship. But the planters and and passengers were smart. They could look at the insignia and say, Leathers is going to charge me 10 cents a bale. I'm going to wait for an anchor line boat that's going to charge me 8 cents. And so he'd wave them down and they'd start to come to the shore and then he'd wave them off. And Ah. they'd keep on going until he got the, the one that they wanted. Right, right. That's, An interesting system, but you know, product of its time. Yeah. So, um, I what, imagine. What are some of the what are some of the innovations in 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 the modern steamboats, other than GPS and you know some computers aboard? I mean, what what else would they put you know particularly in terms of the really, I guess, of the pilots, but even for the passengers. Well, for the passengers, um, you always had hot and cold running water. You didn't have a bathroom. (laughs) So a bathroom was a very nice first step. Um, And of course, there were like they were in the hotels. It was a it was a public bathroom. and, And when they put showers in, it was a public washroom segregated. There was a men's washroom, ladies washroom, but you had separate facilities for that. But then you could take. You know, if you were taking a uh, seven-day cruise, it was nice to take a shower from time to time. Then when they uh, were able to get um, air conditioning, you know, that's a more modern convention. A lot of times you had had ceiling fans, but you didn't – if you notice in the long uh, main salons, most of the ceiling space was taken up with chandeliers. Right, you had, right. You had skylights at the top of the room to try and bring in some light, but then you had chandeliers uh, lining the thing. So they didn't leave you much ceiling space for ceiling fans. So air circulation and, and climate control was a huge innovation um, from that standpoint. And, and absent that, um, just the reliability of the machinery uh, became much more uh, practical. It was much more. You were safety conscious. You didn't have to worry about boiler explosions and things okay. of that sort. Now you still had to worry about um, hitting obstructions. But by the time you got to steel held, steel hulled vessels, you don't even have to worry about that anymore. Right. And uh, I'm sure they probably have modern ones have sonar to, to tell or some kind of depth finding uh, thing, so they don't get on a sandbar or something. Oh, yeah. But, well, you know, that's the interesting thing about, you know, on, in, in Mark Twain's world, a steamboat pilot was one rung below God on the ladder of life. Yeah. I mean, that's a great description, right? And, and you look at it and say, here, he's, he had to learn how to read the river. He had to learn how to do it when you had bright sunshine 
and you had the water reflecting to you. You had to learn to read it at night. And the, the topography that you had was going to be different on every trip because right. you would all these snags and sawyers came by having the river bank being washed out yeah. and all these trees and cypress stumps and whatnot else floating down the river. So that, you know, that that land feature that you looked at when you got to island number 10 and you're looking for this big, tall tree, that big, tall tree is not there anymore. And now you have to find the channel and stay in the channel and keep yourself out of trouble. So, yeah, I Man, mean, it's, a, it's an amazing it, it skill. A, it was yeah. a difficult proposition for, for them <clears throat> to, to try and memorize the river and and to know how to read the water, read it when it's high water read it when it's low water and then you know you've got the missouri bringing tons and tons and tons of of mud yeah uh god i can't remember who said it i think it was uh charles corrupt said it at one point said the entire uh object of indiana is to wash itself down i mean illinois to wash itself down the mississippi to the gulf of mexico right and and you, when you look at the tons and tons of dirt that come down the river, uh, you know, you just wonder how these guys could figure out where it was going to, you know, a, a little sign like a, a pile of driftwood standing in the in the water meant it was going to be shallow. There was a sandbar there, and the driftwood was hung up on the on the sandbar, so he had to give it a wide berth. And um, you would have to have some kind of spotlight to read the river at night, like because um, they didn't just stop when it got dark, did they? Did they? Or did they go twenty four hours, or how did that work? Well, most did not, and those that did had a decided advantage because number one, there was less traffic, so you didn't have to worry about running into anybody. But you had the added problem of uh, having to stop every three hours for fuel. So they had a very long pole. It looked kind of like a, what you see an usher in church using you know, to do the collections, <laughs> except yeah. that the end of it was a metal basket. And they would put some firewood in it and start a little fire and, and put it out over the bow so that you could see the shoreline and he'd have to gradually ease up on his throttle to, to make his landing. Um, and then they would bump that off so they didn't, you know, you're always on the lookout for sparks and, and, and flames. So uh, it was not a, you know, it was not, not a given proposition that you could put a carbon arc light, not until the, you know, New Orleans didn't get them into streetlights until the 1884, 85. So it didn't get to a, a steamboat until the 1890s. So you had all those years where you you had to, to work with what you had. Now, uh, right. yeah, you know, you're reading, like you start, Mark Twain's reading that river. There were no lighthouses up and down the river. There oh, were no buoys. Right. There were none of that. From time to time, the, the woodyards, um, the, the guys who were selling the fuel, would have a signal fire on a little isthmus of land where next to the landing so that you could see it. But those were, you know, around the bend. 
that's not going to help you get around the bend if right. you can't see the, where the shore is. So those were few and far between, but you did have some sort of signaling um, capability there. But again, you know, that was uh, uh, by the time coal came into to play after the Civil War, um, the wood yards went out of business. And that now, disappeared. We have a, I think it's in that same book by Fanny Trollope in the going up the river. And she talks about this kind of miserable family that uh, the job is uh, the men folk and the family chop firewood and sell it to the passing steamboats. Um, and uh, so apparently if you go back far enough before the cold, there was, there were just the trees. Well, you know, the, the fellows who, who made their living selling that figured out very quickly um, which trees to harvest because hardwood uh, burned hotter and so commanded a higher price. So they knew that they wanted to get as many hardwoods as they could as opposed to, so that's why we had so many uh, pine trees survive is because nobody wanted to harvest that for, for river roads. Um, and then he also worked on a, an honor system in, in many cases where he's off harvesting, harvesting his wood and steamboat pulls up and he needs fuel it's like a Keystone Cop thing where the deckhands run off the thing. I mean, they want to get there as quickly as they can. So they're moving and, and the passengers are all <laughs> out on the deck watching this circus go on. Right. They're, they're schlepping the wood back and forth, you know, in, 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 to, to keep the, the boilers hot and running and ready to go. So it was on an honor system. They said, all right, I took four cords of wood. Here's, you know, whatever the price is. And they, they leave the money in a, in a sack for the wooden. So, you know, it's nice to think that not everybody was uh, unscrupulous. Right. Now, in terms of other, uh, to this day, you, you may have read about this, this new development on the riverfront uh, in downtown New Orleans um, that's by the old Market Street Power Station. And the old Market Street Power Station I always wanted to make a steamboat museum because it has two smokestacks that look like a big, big steamboat, and it would have been a perfect thing. Well, that's never been demolished because the Coast Guard registered it as a landmark. So for the pilots coming up and down the Mississippi, they know when they see those two smokestacks, they know where they are in, in any kind of weather, fog, rain, whatever. It gives them, you know, now they have radar, they have all that, they have sonar, but that's still a landmark by the Coast Guard to this day. Oh, here they are. I knew I could find it. All right. So uh, when uh, Fanny Trollope got back to England. She wrote this book about the domestic manners of the Americans. But uh, in it is this uh, picture, which is, uh, you know, a, a woodcutter and his family just living at the edge of the woods, you know, and there's nothing near, uh, you know, nowhere that you can walk. So if you go anywhere, it's on the Mississippi. And anyway, uh, they just, fast as they can, they chop and pile up wood for the next ship. Well, you, you have also, I, I, matter of fact, I have, it should be 
delivered today. I just ordered a book from a bookseller about uh, barge boats and, and shanty boats, um, which were a lot of the, the families from um, the, the wood yards made, right. their, made their living on, on other boats. You know, they adapted to it. Um, and, and so I, I'm waiting to see about some of the other lesser known uh, functions of those. Well, it, before, there's also uh, early on they had, in Louisiana, you had the Piro, which you don't need on a big river, but all these swamps, it's probably uh, better adjusted for that. But also uh, they, uh, they developed flatboat trade, uh, flatboat trade before uh, the steam engine. The problem was you either had to, pull it all the way back up the river if you wanted to keep it, or you could just sell it in New Orleans uh, for the wood. I well, think most of them cats with them. Most of them didn't pull back because they, they tried it once and they found out that's not going to work. That's so, too hard. A lot of times, <laughs> look, it, it cost about $1,300 to build a, a, a flatboat large enough to, to haul a, a lot of cargo uh, down the river. And in most cases, it you could by the time you sold the cargo, you just abandoned the boat, and the locals would take the wood and, and build houses and whatnot for it, or use it for fuel, whatever it might be. And the crew might disappear into a section of New Orleans called the swamp. <laughs> um, I'm sure Abraham Lincoln uh, did not avail himself on either of his trips, but it was a. a a place where even the police would not go in and smaller than platoon size. <laughs> um, you know, they just sort of bring the, bring the bodies to the edge of the, the neighborhood and let them be collected. But, you know, they, if they weren't um, unfortunate enough to be separated from all of their money in their lives, they walked back yeah. to Kentucky or Indiana, whatnot else, and did it all over again. Cause you could make as much in one trip, as you could make in an entire year. So it was I've, worth the, the, I've the heard risk. That, yeah. I've heard that the House of the Rising Sun is actually from a, like Appalachia or somewhere. And it's about a, a young guy that's gone down to the city, at least in some versions, and uh, gotten a venereal disease at the Rising Sun, you know, and come back home and uh, he's just kind of ruined now. It's, his health is wrecked. Well, you know, that that's one of those things um, that New Orleans tour guides and cab drivers and whatnot, you can find out lots and <laughs> lots of interesting stuff. I used to take a shuttle back uh, from the airport, and I'd always tell the driver, just stick me in the back and put me off last because I live downtown, right? So I'm listening to this fellow, and he said, nah. That guy over there, that's Andrew Jackson on that horse and that statue over there. Now, he was married to Marie Laveau, and they had several kids. I'm just like, oh, my God. All these poor tourists are, are you know, eating it all up. They're, they're, I, I, get, I, I gave a talk to a couple hundred tour guides not too long ago. One of the things they asked me was about a racetrack in New Orleans called the Metairie Course. And it was the, the site of one of the most famous horse races uh, ever between Lexington and Lacombe. Now, the first thing to know about it was that it was uh, out of town on the outskirts of the city because uh, gambling was huh, illegal. 
Right, right, right. Um, and um, the horse races were different. They were not sprints like we have today. You had to train your horse to be able to, to run two out of three or win two out of three heats of four miles each. So you had to be prepared to race as many as 12 miles in a day. So it's a different type of race yeah. that you had. Well, this race, like, like the steamboat race, drew millions of dollars of, of wagers and, and all sorts of interest. Um, the James brothers were there and, and uh, there was a president or two there. I mean, it was a, a break. And it was at the Metairie course. Well, eventually the Metairie course went bankrupt and this fellow bought it and turned it into a cemetery. And it's as, as you drive through New Orleans, it's one of the cemeteries that you pass on the interstate going from the airport into the city. Yeah, it's on the right. Um, right, when you kind of make the curve to head down into New Orleans proper. It, yeah, and it's on the right, exactly. And as you, if you look at it in an aerial view, you can still see the oval <laughs> of the horse track. That's funny. Right, so now, now the, the tour guides will tell you that the fellow who uh, won the race is buried at the finish line. No. Hmm. They're not buried at the finish line. Yeah, so there are lots of lots of stories. I mean, like the LaLaurie mansion is the, the most haunted mansion. The, the, the house that they're visiting and showing on these ghost tours and whatnot else is not even the same house. The original house was torn down, and 30 years later, they built another house. Oh. So, so, you know, I did not see, know that. It's, it's I... interesting about what they try to make uh, more frightening or fascinating in their tours. You know. They got to punch it up. Maybe <laughs> put a vampire or two in there and a, maybe a Rougarou. <laughs> Axeman, the Axeman was here. <laughs> well, you know, play, play that jazz at night and you won't, you won't get the Axeman to come. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's well, right. you know, and every time somebody's doing work in the quarter and, and, and believe it or not, there are basements in the French Quarter, you know, which surprises a lot of people. But every time you somebody's doing work and they find a tunnel, they go, oh, that's Jean Lafitte was smuggling something through that tunnel. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> it's just a hole, you know. Right, yeah. Well, I heard some, I saw on the uh, Facebook the other day, somebody was complaining about a, a, a carriage ride tour giving bad information and I said well as long as he gets back without running off into one of those potholes I would I would consider us to be ahead you know <laughs> exactly because the, it, the yeah. whole thing could just disappear and nobody would know what had ever happened to any of them so yeah tell your stories guy but keep your eyes ahead really well, I say we've been going almost two hours. Boy, time really flies when you're uh, having fun. Have we uh, got any topics we haven't covered that you wanted to, to mention? Well, no, I think it's it's um, it's just that each each boat had its own story. It's it it sounds redundant, you know, because so many of them had the same. Uh, outcome. Um, 
but they really were different people. And I try to bring a little of that into it and, and, and something of the times. Um, and so many interesting personalities. The rivers, I mean, if you've read Huck Finn, you see the kind of larger than life uh, uh, people that they meet along the way. And it just, it's like the Mississippi was an attract, you know, attracted that. Well, it, it did. And, you know, what, and I centered most of it on the Mississippi and a little bit on the Ohio. But, you know, people don't stop to think about um, the Missouri was used with steamboats to get the cavalry, to get Custer and his cavalry out to the Black Hills. Right. Because there were no train lines out there. So they had to use steamboats to get them out there. And that's, you know, that's something for a, a later book or, or a different article. But um, Wait, Elizabeth you know, Custer has a wonderful uh, uh, memoir. And we've got the part of it with she and a, I guess I think it was a captain at the time. Uh, captain Custer came to New Orleans and fell in love with the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she was, she was here with the Grand Duke Alexis. Uh, for that first Mardi Gras as well, because they had been uh, buffalo hunting uh, with Wild Bill. And uh, wow. Wild Bill was was familiar with New Orleans because he had his Wild West show, had played at the St. Charles Theater for several years. Of course, a scaled-down version, no no animals or anything. But uh, later, later years, he held it out at the racetrack that was uh, also where George Duvall had his pacing horses, called the Oakland track, which was right across from the Metairie course. It's now right. the, it's now the fairway at the New Orleans country club golf course. Um, but he would stay there during the winter and uh, have his wild west shows there. So he was familiar with New Orleans as well. So, and Mardi Gras. Cool. Well, why don't you show your book? Oh, one more time. Let me make sure you're, uh... let's see if, if we, yes. can... there it we go. Oh, oh. got to get the right angle. Yeah, so the lights yeah, don't yeah. Break it. Well, you, do are, have, you do have pictures in there. Uh, uh, that people can 163 uh, yeah. uh, photographs or illustrations. I, I have some old uh, engravings from from um, Scribner's or, or Harper's. And I oh, colorized. Had some nice stuff. I colorized everything because um, I, I get feedback from people. You know, I, I put them both online. And right. it seems like the ones that are colorized, people relate to a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're not perfect. A lot of these are old um, negatives, um, glass plate negatives that had not been stored and, and cared for properly or, or restored um, from that matter. So, you know, the, the colorizer, I don't want to do too much Photoshop to it to, take away any of the legitimacy of it. Right. But the engravings were, you know, as many high resolution as they as you could find. The colors came out beautifully and, and reproduced very well. So um, the ones that I had of the roustabouts sleeping, everybody said, oh, those shiftless guys. I said, those shiftless guys just probably unloaded 5,000 bales of cotton <laughs> in, in seven hours, and they're taking a nap before their next shift, you know. Right. So, so it's uh, it's it brings a little bit of, of everybody into into play. Oh yeah, well thank you so much for coming back. This has been great. Uh, I loved our sport talk a couple of years back, but uh, I, I really have a 
a warm spot for uh, any kind of machinery. Maybe next time we can do street cars. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you you know Ed Ed Brandley. He's he can do street yeah, cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Edward Ed's is a, a, a guru for that. You know. Uh, well, there's a there's a thing about those the street cars. He's got a friend that. I think is an authority on streetcars in North Louisiana or something, because it turns out that the two largest cities up here had them too. Shreveport and Monroe both had, particularly mm -hmm. Shreveport had a really extensive, uh, or really it was the trolleys, and they had their own trolleys over there. But Monroe had some form of that as well, and I did, did not know that until just in the past four, five, six years. You know, that's one of the things that, that sets people in New Orleans off is when you call it a trolley. <laughs> You know, it's it's a trolley everywhere else, right? Except New Orleans, it's a streetcar because Tennessee Williams did not write the trolley name Desire. Well, and uh, and to me, it, to me, it works either way. But you know, it, that sets people well, off sometimes. Monroe has kind of a trolley. It's, uh, it just runs the bus route. There's no like track, or you know, it's a uh, probably diesel or. But it looks like a streetcar. So yeah, they put the, they, ride the street car, they put the streetcar body on a tr on a car or, or vehicle chassis. Is what I heard. So they have some so of that in Alexandria like too. Yeah. So uh, poor well, man's Little Rock, Little Rock is bringing them back. They actually have. They were going to reinstall a line. I, I, I guess they went forward with this. But I used to know somebody that lived in Little Rock, and she was telling me about all this. They they even had the. Um, they had a line down downtown of all places. It was, you know, around the historical part of Little Rock. And you could actually see, I guess, I don't know if it was the old path of the rail lines or what it was. But anyway, they and maybe they, you know, put those things back or what. But anyhow, they, they were going to have a, you know, a, a streetcar line in downtown Little Rock of all places. Well, you know, my, it, it's it's funny. New Orleans uh, it learns their lessons the hard way, if at all. <laughs> And, you know, they're they're getting millions and millions of dollars uh, from the transportation department to rebuild the streetcar lines that they tore up 75 years ago and 80 years ago. And my my nephew, uh, who was born in Houston, but he now lives in San Diego, he's making a wonderful living rebuilding urban streetcar or trolley lines, uh, you know, and. Well, the car companies and the, uh, I guess the, the gasoline producers really lobbied to just tear up all the tracks. I think at one point we were down to St. Charles Avenue, and, and I, when I lived here in the, I think it was the eighties, maybe for the World's Fair, they they opened up the Canal Street line. Yeah. Um, but uh, and then just little by slowly, you can see it. At some point, maybe we'll have the whole French Quarter, uh, you know, connect. All we need now is Esplanade, right? Uh, we've got the river part, the Canal Street, and uh, Rampart. So uh, if we can get it put back <clears throat> on the Esplanade. <laughs> well, you know, that streetcar named Desire used to come up Royal Street. Um, and it would go down Bourbon and up Royal. And, and you can't do that anymore. No. But you could you could do it, and they already have the Rampart Street line. So if you could get, you, you can't do Esplanade because you'd have to cut down all the oak trees. Right, right. I was just thinking all those trees. <laughs> so you know that would be nice, but you can't do that. But you could have um, uh, other areas that you could 
redo that because most people when when you look on the the tourist sites they say what what are the what are the things that a family can do when they come to New Orleans? And you say, okay, well, you can go to the aquarium and you can go to the zoo. Be sure to take the streetcar. And right. you know, if you get the if you get the uh, the tourist pass, it's like a three day pass. You can get on and off. So oh, yeah. you can say, okay, well, you know, you can ask the conductor, say, let me know when I get to the garden district. And you get off at the garden district and you go walk and look at some houses and what else, then get back on it and get down to the, the university section and look at the, that. Then you get to the zoo and you look at that. So, you know, you could do that very economically. And oh, my goodness. Yeah, they're, they're cheap. And um, I remember I was here uh, for a week. And just one night it was, um, it was, I don't know how late it was. I helped on a streetcar on St. Charles Street. I'm not, not St. Charles, on am up at the head of Canal Street. Just me and uh, one homeless guy and the the, the, uh, the guy driving it. And we went all the way out to um, the bus station, I think, and, and all the way back in. And uh, and the uh, driver, I sat there, and he had moved in from Chicago and uh, started working. Uh, he had been a bus driver there, but he liked the, the streetcar. And he let me sit in the uh the driver's seat and went outside, took a picture of me uh, <laughs> conducting that that streetcar. I did not move that one, but uh, yeah, <laughs> you could tell I was happy that I got, got my uh, like five year old face on. <laughs> well, thank well, you so they, much, Derby. This has been great. Well, I, I sure appreciate it. And it oh yeah, great. well, and I will tell our listeners these make great. Christmas presents. These will be coming out around that time. So, uh, yeah. And uh, yep. you, you want well, I, for your coffee table and for your mops. So, yeah. And I, uh, for as my PSA, I have a book signing on November 28th. All right. Which is coming up. So, at yeah. seven o'clock at the uh, East Bank Regional Library out in Metairie. So, uh, if this is out in time for that, that's great. But there'll be others after that. Is that the one on airline? No, this is on on uh, West Napoleon. Okay, okay. Oh, um, that may be what I was thinking. I was doing one of those East West streets. Uh, they've got a real nice library, and they've got like at one point they had a snack bar. I don't know if they still do yep. that. Uh, yeah. Yep. yeah. So my apologies, West Napoleon. All right. Well, have a great Thanksgiving, Derby. You too, and thanks again for the invitation. I appreciate oh, of it. Course. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye, guys. Take care. We really want to thank Derby for coming back on our podcast and letting us know some more fascinating material about Louisiana. You know, we've had him on, this is our third time, I believe. Um, and um, it's been great every time. He has such deep knowledge of local history. At least just interconnects, which you, know, you don't always get it. You know, somebody just does that one thing that they, uh, you know, study all about it. So appreciate Derby and uh, hope that he will come back again when he has his next book out. Yeah, he's making the uh, rounds right now. You know, he's not only posting a lot on Facebook, you can go and you know, join his Facebook group, but he's also going around, I think, doing some speaking about his book. So he didn't just join us, in other words, for this uh, chat. 
he's going around and, you know, talking about the book. So if you are in an area where you see that he is, you know, and he's posting on social media. So if you do see that he's in your area, do go try to uh, meet him and, you know, listen to his little talks and, and grab a copy of his book. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Luke McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly do want to thank Derby for, for coming and chatting with us the past couple of weeks. Again, do go and, and uh, listen to him uh, when he gives a lecture or you know some sort of presentation about his book because it is a very interesting subject matter. And if you are a Louisiana, remember that without the steamboat, there would be no modern Louisiana. Uh, it was a real revolution in transportation and in the travel and so forth and so on, So, and as well as uh, the, the movement of consumer goods. So do go and listen to what he has to say. Do go pick up a copy of his book. We again, thank Derby for joining us. We also want to thank all of you for listening in, and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.